Part 6. Stacking Up Michael Penley spent his early years in Reseda, California, logging nearly every free moment in his grandmother's living room. Penley's mother had conceived him when she was only 15, and because she had never revealed who had contributed to his creation, he had never met his birth father. Though his maternal grandmother had spared no venom when chastising her daughter over her sinful ways and unfathomable irresponsibility, to her credit, she allowed both children to continue to live in her home rent-free. And when his mother decided to pick up a job after her high school classes, Grandma was more than happy to care for the little soon-to-be police officer. With two strong women to raise him, the young Penley realized quickly that he had to hit the ground running when it came to being the man of the house and there wasn't much time for him to enjoy the blissful ignorance that comes with being a little boy. A naturally conscientious person, he was known to spend his evenings by his grandmother's side, helping her dry the dishes, then pass his Saturday mornings carrying bags of groceries in from his mother's car. As he grew into adolescence, his helpful nature only grew stronger, and he found it possible to continue to be a solid leg in his household's tripod, while performing excellently in the classroom, on the gridiron, and at the pizza place where he became the franchise's most outstanding busboy. Right around the time Pendley was set to graduate high school, his mother had begun to feel the long years of struggle take their toll, and her health slowly began to deteriorate. She seemed to be in a perpetual state of fever and fatigue, and at a certain point she even had to stop working. Pendley was fortunate to be able to delay his registration at Cal State Long Beach to continue to both work his side jobs and help his grandmother take care of his mother as she prepared for the end. Almost just as fortunately, he would only have to delay that registration once because his mother passed away soon afterwards. Penley was in the room as she battled for enough breath to properly say goodbye, and he was rather surprised at what she had to say. Along with the sentiments and bittersweet musings that one might expect, she offered the first and only descriptions of his father. She explained that she never got a good look at him because his conception was the result of a sexual assault. She had not wanted to tell neither her mother nor Penley due to the shame and stigma of being a child of rape, but she did want her only son to know the truth. The event was indeed traumatic, and even though he begat her greatest joy in her humble life, it had also changed her from a warm, friendly soul into a shy and nervous being. This explained her penchant for staying home, and her refusal to neither date nor even consider additional children. His mother told Penley that she had ventured to journal her thoughts about the more influential moments of her life, and if he felt so obliged, he could read up and flesh out the details from her recollection. Penley was rightly rather depressed upon his mother's untimely death, and the concept of his own birth circumstances were a whirlwind in themselves, but he still found it difficult to crack his mother's diary and read what she had written. She had confided the location of her reflections solely to him, so the temptation to simply dispose of it was always lingering, but the pressure soon became too intense, and he decided that if his mother mentioned it to him, she must have wanted him to know her experience. Though a painful undertaking all the way through, he read every word of his mother's journal, 
which belovedly began with his own birth. Combing through her most unfiltered words, Penley found an entirely new image of the woman who sacrificed everything to raise him right. And as a result, he only further committed to living his life both in memory of and as a testament to her strength and resilience. Still a young man with his whole life ahead of him, and every opportunity to be a top performer, he had his ambitions reawakened with his new purpose. He just needed to do one thing first. The description of his mother's attacker had been clear enough to launch Penley's personal investigation, and he began his work the next afternoon, making his first visit to the city of Baldwin Park. The young man cruised down Fraser as he took in the locale that had represented his most absolute image of hell. Everyone he passed was a suspect, and to his mind, everyone who resided in the cesspool must be guilty of some crime on the level of what was done to his mother. Penley finally made it to where his mother had written was the spot of the incident, a small home on the corner of Waco and Athol, where a local Sierra Vista high school student had hosted a small gathering for friends. The vengeful son stepped out of his car and took a quick look around to get a lay of the land. He knew there was a chance that the original family did not live there anymore, and even if they did, they more than likely had no idea who he would be looking for. His mother had described a medium-height Latino man who was wearing a white shirt and baggy gray jeans, in other words, almost anyone in this city. The only hard clue he had to work off of was a tattoo she had noted, one of what appeared to be a scorpion tail that ran up the side of his face. Penley figured he'd keep an eye out, but there would be more than likely a lot more digging in front of him if he wanted to make a break in the case. Unfortunately, it would be a couple years before Penley would learn that this house was currently right in the heart of Poodle 626 territory, and they didn't take very kindly to Snoops. Yo, you looking for something? Came a voice from behind. Penley turned around and saw four men approaching him. Where you from, bruh? Inquired another as he hovered his hand over his waistband. Penley tried to defuse the situation by lying that he was looking at renting a room in the area and thought he saw a sign in the window. As the men drew closer, he noticed that although covered in their share of ink, there was no scorpions to be found. As he made this conclusion, one of the men began to circle his car, taking a direct look at what was inside. The apparent leader asked how much he wanted for the ride, which Penley immediately read as a mind game and clarified that he was just about to leave. Unfortunately, the poodles were not ready to let go just yet. One got in the driver's seat of the car as the one closest to Penley asked for the keys. Let's take it around the block, yeah? We'll make a deal. You let me take the whip for a spin, and I'll put you on the best room vacancies on the block. Sound good? I need my car, Penley replied as he tried to step aside and make his way out of the corner. The banger sidestepped right in his path and quickly shifted tone. Well, if you're going to drive a hard sale, maybe we'll just take it then, he said as he lifted his shirt to reveal his weapon. Penley found his tongue paralyzed by the threat and froze up completely, keeping his gaze on the ground and hoping now that they would just steal his car and leave him alone. Imagine his relief when one of the would-be assailants yelled, Gab cops! and started running down the block, soon to be tailed by his homies. An unmarked Crown Vic soon came speeding down, and out of it emerged two plainclothes detectives, who checked in on the shaking up Penley and made sure he was okay. They explained to him that he was in a bad part of the neighborhood, and whatever it is he was doing, he better drop it and head someplace else. Feeling all of his emotions reached their boiling point, Penley replied that he couldn't do that. He then, for the first time, explained his situation to the cops, and upon hearing the scorpion tattoo detail, they invited him to come to the station and talk some more. Penley hopped into his beloved vehicle and followed the detectives all the way to the Ballon Park Police Station, where he was escorted into the Gap office and introduced to none other than Lieutenant Francis Girardi.
The two detectives explained to the boss that they saw Lopez and some of his associates hassling Penley, and they got to talking, and it turned out he was looking for someone familiar. Penley told a story to Girardi, whose eyes brightened up at the illustrative clue. The lieutenant immediately pulled the file and showed Penley the mugshot of none other than Andres Villalobos, current leader of the Puros. As Penley took in the image, he almost didn't know how to react. That was clearly a Latino man, and although significantly aged from his high school days, he still carried the scorpion tail on his face. He was listed at 5'7", and his record indicated that he had attended Sierra Vista High School for half a year. Just enough time to make some friends and break into the social party scene. Just like that, he had found his mother's rapist. And his father. Giving him a minute to process it all, Girardi then asked what agency had the DNA evidence. Penley replied that no one had any evidence because she had never reported it. Thinking quickly that he had never considered that it would be almost impossible to make a case based on a diary entry of a deceased woman, Penley began to despair. He quickly and rather foolishly asked if there was any way they could proceed without evidence. Girardi took a heavy breath and asked him to wait outside. What Penley would never hear was that the Gap Cops had a decent working relationship with Villalobos. He behaved rather well, kept his boys on a tight leash, and kept his hands out of heavy endeavors, so they weren't too giddy on toppling him. The thing was, if this was true, and why would a young man come in here and lie about something like this, then Villalobos was a bigger piece of shit than the Gap unit had thought. There are unwritten rules in the underground, and one of them is you don't attack women or children. It's the same reason rapists get their crimes paid over tenfold when they get to the cell blocks, while murderers walk in with immediate respect. It's just the way it goes. Though they might not have seen things this way exactly, the Gap unit was about as underground as it got, and they knew that Villalobos couldn't be a part of their operation anymore. Even if he was clear of this incident, they figured he had probably done something like this a few times in addition to the accusation. Puros were about to get a new leader. Girardi called Pendley back in and told him that their work was cut out for them, since they lacked evidence, but they would look into it and see what they could find. He assured him that a guy like Villalobos had his hands in a thousand different pots that all had harsh legal consequences, so they could probably find him on something. Though still despairing and feeling like he had failed, Penley left the station and drove back home to the valley with a hint of optimism. Something told him it would all work out. A few days later, he would receive a phone call from a private number. He did not accept the call, and a voice message had arrived. A dark, deep voice simply said to Google the name. Knowing right away that the reference was to Andres Villalobos, Penley searched the name and saw what he had in so many ways hoped for. The article was only a hundred words or so, announcing that the BP ganglord had been stabbed to death at what looked like a drug deal gone wrong last night, but it did mention his previous crimes, his ties to the Puro 626 faction, and even threw in that he was also accused of a number of sexual assaults. It didn't take much to piece together that it was Girardi who had made that call, and he had more to do with that death than he would ever admit. Penley was so elated with the swift slice of justice that he made one more vow. The fact was, he owed everything to Lieutenant Girardi and his team. Young Michael Penley decided that his only purpose in life, in addition to living to his full potential in honor of his mother, was to become the most dependable and productive police officer under Lieutenant Francis Alessandro Girardi.
Chief Ardalis may have achieved her success by bending when necessary, but she was not about to let a pair of FBI agents chew her out in her own office. Girardi was nowhere to be found, disappearing into thin air while still carrying a police badge that he was not authorized to use. Ardalis knew that her reasoning would not fly with these agents, and they would never understand why she kept him on such a long leash, but the facts were the facts. She could not do anything to help them bring him in for questioning. For a split second, she thought about pointing them in police aide Gabriel Lomelli's direction, knowing that Girardi liked to coordinate office information through him when he needed to avoid supervisors. However, she felt that it was unfair to sick those hungry lions on that timid young sheep and tabled the idea, choosing instead to continue to endure the insolent special agents. Ardalis knew that Girardi was on the hunt for McGill's killer, and he wouldn't show up until the perp was in custody, and that was the best-case scenario. Deep in her gut, she knew Girardi and his team were not particularly keen on bringing the trigger man back in one piece. They liked to play things loose with bangers, and she had grown accustomed to looking the other way when they were brought into the station almost always sporting some kind of wound that required immediate medical attention. Who knows in what condition the man who killed McGill would find himself. The chief stopped the avalanche of terrifying possibilities by deciding that she would try to help the agents as much as she could without allowing her city to turn into a battlefield. And when she found a moment, she'd reach out to Gabe herself. Perhaps he could be the key to surviving the storm. It's often said that when one asks for strength, he or she is given challenges. The idea is that genuine improvement cannot be granted. It must be forged. Deliana Desarian had been perpetually asking for the abilities to become a better detective, and she was now most certainly receiving the appropriate amount of challenges to do so. The moves were all there in front of her. Garza was the lead suspect for both the drive-by at Lagos and McGill's cold-blooded assassination, and it was likely that he had hired adept killer Wally Pimento to do either or both of the assaults. However, as is always the hard part, she needed to gather enough proof tying them to the strikes before she could move in and make the arrests. That, and she needed to find Pimento. Hopefully before Girardi and his detectives rounded him up and committed even more abuses of the badge in administering their justice. Fortunately, she had her priceless contact in Diego Mujero at the Vallarta supermarket, where Lago had run his beer and liquor hustle. She figured she could press Diego enough to call in Lago or at least set it up so Diego can gain his location. Then she would tag along and start squeezing for some real information. After confidently taking a much closer parking spot this time around, she entered the market and asked to speak to him. Having been misdirected once more, she quickly told the cashier to cut the crap and get Diego down here now. The cashier cowered at the brazen authority of the detective and through chattering teeth told her that she was telling the truth. She then said that no one had heard from Diego in a few days and the rumor was going around that he skipped town. Apparently every employee of this market was trained to guzzle information upon first intimidation because the cashier continued by claiming that she had heard from one of the butchers that he got whacked for talking to police. Understanding that the poor cashier didn't have knowledge of Diego's gang ties and may feel that Threses just kill anyone who talks to police, she eased her nerves by thanking her and telling her that she appreciated the tips. After reaffirming that she need not worry, and if she had it her way, she'd never come back to this place, she exited the store. Trece big man Lago clearly took the deputy's meddling seriously, and although Diego had been a dickhead, she shuddered to think how he had been disposed of on her account. The fact also remained that this meant her ace in the whole CI was out of commission, and she would now need to find a new way to track Memento. And she would need to do so quickly, considering all the time she had lost tracking this lead. Luckily, she knew just where to start.
Though not a regular reader, Detective Desarian immediately appreciated the aesthetic and overall vibe of the West Covina Public Library. As she waited for her contact, she perused the librarian recommendations and found the latest Alex Cross entry from the world-renowned author James Patterson. She had never read the icon, but she was just lost enough to think maybe the universe would hand her a clue if she opened the book to a random page. The text she found summarized a string of unsolved rapes and murders in the D.C. area, and all she could grasp from that was that even literary detectives hit significant snags in their cases. As she tried more luck on another passage, a familiar voice gently spoke to her. Oh, that's a good one. Very tense, even for Alex Cross. Dilly closed the book and turned to see Gabe's giant smile. She did her best to pinch one of her own and quickly asked if they could find a spot to chat. He replied that he had already saved them a soundproof study room, and so they made their way to the next step in the investigation. The two had a good chat to start things off. Gabe was still a bit reluctant to divulge too much information to the deputy, but he deeply appreciated how she was treating him as an integral part of the investigation. She had made a good enough case that any information he could supply her with would go a long way toward protecting Girardi and the department in the long run. The last thing they needed was for a top-ranking cop to go on a murderous rampage in vengeful response to a problem he created. Detective Sergeant began Gabe before being reminded that she prefer he just call her Dilly. What's most important to me, and that might not mean a whole lot, but just like the other uniforms at the station, I want to see the monster that killed Detective McGill on the fastest route possible to a needle filled to the brim with potassium chloride. You and I haven't been on the same page necessarily, and I still don't care that much for you, to be completely honest. But if anything I know can help you catch the killer and keep Girardi out of harm's way, I'll share everything I know. Dilly began by asking him what he knew about Girardi's whereabouts. Gabe leaned in a bit and gently uttered that he knew where they were, and yes, they had Garza with him. The detective decided that it was a bit too early to press for the location, and instead pivoted to questions about Pimento. The police aide gave her everything he knew about the hired gun, reminding her that he was the one that was almost arrested in place of Verde that same day she strolled into the station. Interesting to think about the conversation we'd be having if G had went ahead and sought Pimento instead. I bet he's tortured by the thought that it might have been a mistake that cost one of his men his life. Do you know where Girardi would have found Pimento? I had a deputy tail Garza a couple days ago and he managed to get a visual on the two of them talking, but the trail went cold right after. Gabe again dipped his gaze in his speaking volume. Girardi and Pimento go way back. He cleared his throat and began again. He sort of owes G a favor. He was going to set up a meeting and I guess break the truce, then bring him in. Does he have contact information that you could get a hold of? Oh no, this was a very personal favor. I don't even think Naik or McGill had that information. In terms of finding Pimento, the only thing I can think of is to find a way to get one of the gang lords to make the call. I'm sure his inbox is full of hits at double as normal rate right now. As Dilly immediately thought of Theo, and both his ease to be found and her acquaintanceship with him, Gabe continued. Although, you should be careful. After all, one of these leaders called in the hit on McGill, and others probably called more on other Gap cops and maybe even you specifically. A bit like a game of 
Baldwin Park Roulette, right? Gabe was on the money, and although he took the wind out of her sails, she was glad for it. The fact was, there were a few dozen people who could put a bullet in her head at any moment in the city, so it wasn't like there were any safe options, but there were also smarter ways to go about it. Dilly, if I may, it probably would make the most sense to find G first. I'll give you the location if you promise you won't arrest him. Once you get to him, you can get him to get Garza to call in Pimento, and you'll have Shot Caller and Trigger Man in no time. That way, you guys make all the proper arrests together, and not only does no one get in any unnecessary trouble, but all the Gap Cops look like heroes in front of those nasty FBI investigators. And just like that, she had her plan. She flashed her secret weapon a big smile, which he promptly returned, being his default expression. And then she asked what she had been wondering since the moment they met. Why didn't you become a cop, Gabe? You spend all your time at the station, tons of extra hours helping Gerardi and his team. You're never hard to find when anyone needs help on a case. Why not just make it official? Gabe's smile dwindled a bit at the question. He took a beat and responded, God gives us all a role to play, Dilly. I just try to play mine as best as I can. Although, at times like these, I sure do wish I could help a little more. Dilly gave Gabe a playful smack on the back and added what the young man would remember as one of the nicest things anyone had ever said to him. More? Gabe, your police work might have just made this case. Nothing ever compares to the ride of American muscle, especially the elite engineering that went into Detective Desarian's unmarked Challenger. However, she was pretty sure that one didn't need the previous experience of operating quality Dodge horsepower to know that these LASD Crown Vicks were shit. As she headed up the winds of the road into the industrial parts of Irwindale, she couldn't help but feel that her department could have at least assigned her one of the explorers. Despite the veiled knock at her ego, Dilly ran through the details of the case in her head, she knew from BPPD's files that Pimento would be able to be put under arrest immediately for several crimes, but she figured that it would be so much more satisfying to verbally shout, You're under arrest for the murder of Detective McGill! She had the motive easy enough. Any gang lord would want the notoriety of being bold enough to kill a gap cop. The clout would be at its peak value as the war broke out, and everyone got a feel for who was playing thug and who was playing for real. Means were even easier, being that Pimento had quite the reputation for knocking out pipsqueak bangers all the way up to major cartel captains. Opportunity was right for picking as well, considering that unless he had an alibi, a distracted McGill was a sitting duck in that unmarked cruiser. Another note crept up into her mind as she weaved around the warehouses, looking for the markers Gabe had described to her. Detective McGill had been assassinated with one single 45 ACP round, fired through a suppressor. That was a rather heavy round and an expensive one at that. Your everyday puro or trece probably kept some Russian aluminum case 9mm junk in his piece. Whoever pulled that trigger was an elite class of killer, one who knew that a bigger hole meant more blood and less chance of survival. He was willing to pay for that assurance too, meaning that he must have arranged a heavy fee that covered that expense. If Wally Pimento wasn't her guy, she'd have a hard time finding another suspect that fit the profile as well as he did. With a quick peek in her rearview mirror to make sure she wasn't being followed, she found the location. 
Gabe had told her that Girardi gave him the coordinates in case something went wrong. If Girardi didn't let the police say no all was good in the morning, he was supposed to call it in and get some uniforms over there to see what happened. With such a foreboding instruction, Dilly was ultra careful in her approach. The warehouse was marked by the sign that read Antigua Motorsports above its massive garage door. Dilly parked far enough to remain covert, but close enough to make a potential run for cover, and quietly exited the car. Unlike the noisy approach they had exercised when visiting Theo, she knew in this situation it would be wise to approach the furious Gap cops with as much stealth as she could muster. With her Glock in hand, she made her way to the glass door and gently tugged on the handle to confirm that it was indeed locked. It only took a few rotations of her lockpicks to gain access, and once she did, she found the inside pitch black, making her wonder if she had been too late. Creeping around the corners under the sole guide of her feet, ears, and intuition, she did not want to tip anyone off with a bright flashlight. She noticed a burst of brightness around a bend. The deputy slowly made her way toward the source, opening her ear canals as much as she could to hear the signature voice of Lieutenant Girardi and hopefully Victor Garza as well. Sadly, there was no sound whatsoever, outside of a bit of shuffling that she was not quite sure she was just imagining due to the dead silence. Her gut was churning in tight circles at this point, and every fiber of her being told her something wasn't right. But she quelled those instincts and decided that her entire case depended on her carrying forward, so she continued to carefully put one foot in front of the other. As she turned the final corner before the light source, she instinctively tapped her Kevlar to make sure it was aligned in front of her heart properly, and before she took the step that would leave her exposed, she heard something. It was mumbled. The first red flag, she couldn't remember the bodacious lieutenant ever speaking under 90 decibels. And it sounded like Spanish. At first she thought it was a discussion of human trafficking, or perhaps they had seen her and were hurling a generic insult. However, when the first member of the Desmadre Bolin turned the corner and lifted his rifle up to meet her face, only to have her 9mm round tag him right between the eyes... She realized he had not been saying a Spanish pejorative term for a prostitute, he had tipped his homies off about the diputada. With the sound of shots in the air, the Spanish got louder, and she could rest assured that she was not going to find Girardi and Garza in this warehouse, and she could only hope that they had not been ambushed by this hungry band of desmadres. Well, that and she could also hope that she would live to see the outside of this building. Dilly scurried over the biggest piece of metal she could find and promptly ducked behind it. Shots rang out as one dismother chastised the act of shooting into darkness. The deputy remained as silent as she could, knowing both that she was outnumbered and these bangers would want nothing more than to be known as the ones who killed the LASD investigator, for the same reason Garza and the Puros had wanted to kill McGill. The gunmen shined their flashlights forward as they began to search the warehouse, each eager to be the one that got the kill. As she waited for the inevitable, no doubt ready to take out at least a few bangers before she was officially granted her end of watch, Dilly reflected on her time in the Baldwin Park Arendale area. Easily the toughest and messiest case of her short career, she had done her entire job on her heels from the moment they crossed the city limits. From being unable to get a hold of a police officer, to suspecting them of setting her up, then having one of her cooperatives killed while she was absent, and all the way up to forming an unofficial and illicit alliance with the lieutenant that he almost immediately broke. Now, here she was, about to get her card pulled by some two-bit gang members before she could even see 30. Suddenly, working in the county jails didn't seem like such a bad assignment. Another gunshot rang out as a gunman yelled in Spanish his frustration at having to wait for her. Dilly gripped her pistol tight and made a vow to fire as many of the 16 shots as she could before succumbing, comforted only by the thought 
then at least Gabe would be able to start the process of identifying or finding her body in only a few hours. The steps grew closer and closer as Dilly did everything she could to avoid springing up and just getting the shootout over with. Finally, she realized they were right on her, and it was now or never. Go down like an LASD deputy ought to, or die like a dog cowering behind cover. She worked to catch her breath and tense up as she mentally prepared to attack. However, she wouldn't quite get the chance. Right as Dilly was about to light up the Atramentis warehouse, a Chevy Tahoe burst through the garage door and absorbed a flurry of bullets from the Gizmata. She peeked over to the side and saw that there were three FBI SUVs creating a wall of cover as agents fired back into the garage. She sprinted her way under the cover fire to a more advantageous position and began firing rounds of her own. Being the elite force that municipal agencies hated to admit, it was not long before all four of the remaining gunmen were no more, and the situation was brought to an end. With tension still through the roof, Dilly immediately scanned the agents and saw her friend, Agent Culver, amidst them. However, as he directed his troops, he was less than cordial this time around. How did you find me? the deputy asked as she holstered her weapon. I was watching for tails the whole way. We're the FBI, Desarian. We put a tracker on that Vic before the department even assigned it to you. Kind of obvious to figure you'd lead us right to Girardi, right? You weren't lying about him being hard to find. Was he here? I don't know. Doesn't look like it. What exactly were you looking for? You know this was an ambush, right? Bangers tailing you this closely means you're making too much noise. I think I know who killed McGill. It was under orders from Garza, but it's a hitman Girardi knows. Victor Garza? Culver clarified. That can't be right. Why not? Agent Culver tightened his lips at the audacity of asking for more information from a much higher ranking agency. Look, I try not to be like the stereotype. I reached out to you and tried to keep LASD close for the entirety of this thing. But you're now officially overstepping. You're supposed to be on leave, remember? Consider me not telling your boss about this whole thing my final favor, okay? With that, he began walking back to his SUV, entering the vehicle and grabbing his radio. Unsatisfied, Dilly made one last effort, scurrying over to the agent. Why can it not be Garza? He has every reason to want a gap cop dead. His gang is falling under a new leader. He's never cooperated with Girardi. He has Pimento on speed dial. Trust me, Desarian, he ain't the guy. Just leave it. Well, wherever Girardi went, he has Garza with him. The agent placed his radio receiver back in his dock immediately upon taking in this info. Girardi has Garza? His boys told me Girardi broke into a safe house with his team and yanked him out of there. He wants info on McGill's killer. He thinks Garza put in the hit too. Or at least he'll know who did. Culver began shaking his head. God damn it. Or Dallas knew, didn't she? She's still trying to protect him. Shit. Do you know where he is? I know who can lead us there. But you gotta tell me how you know Garza's not involved first. Fine, whatever. We're going to your CI now. I'll follow. Dilly sprinted down to her FBI-tracked Crown Vic, quickly peeling out back onto the main road, tailed by Culver and toward that oh-so-valuable police aid, with only the strong hope that Girardi hadn't done anything irreversible to the apparently innocent Puro 626 gang lord Victor Garza. Knowing full well their history and the years and years of animosity Girardi had built toward this banger in particular, Dilly pushed that cruiser to its limit under the impression that however she found the two, it was bound to be a scene so grisly it would surpass all of the egregious macabre that she had just felt she was getting used to.